Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for being part of our audience today. Wow, it is a target-rich environment when it comes to topics among the things we're going to be discussing today. Uh, One of the things we'll talk about is why is it that so many of the challenges we face become more complicated, in fact, become more widespread when we turn to government for a solution. Got a great explanation from Kent McManigal. I think you're going to like it. We'll also be uh, talking about why the need to or the right to keep and bear arms is understood now uh, more than ever. I think the last few days have impressed upon a lot of people, maybe lots who are on the fence, that Actually, I do think it's a good idea to be capable of protecting myself. Got a terrific article from Sam Jacobs from Ammo.com on what democide is and why the state cannot be allowed to have a total monopoly on force. Also, coming up in the next hour, uh, we'll have uh, Libertas Institute policy analyst Molly Davis join us. She'll be talking about criminal justice reform. Qualified immunity, policing reforms on the state level that can make the right kind of difference. And Paul Craig Roberts has an interesting challenge to the narrative that only certain ethnic groups are at threat from the state's organized violence. But I want to start with something that I know is going to raise a few hackles. How? Well, because uh, I've I've been raising hackles apparently the last couple of days simply by not being sufficiently, uh, what's the word, woke? As, as a social justice imperative, I, I'm not marching in solidarity or I'm not chanting in unison with enough people. And, and it's not that I'm opposing them even. I'm just not waving the flag, you know, enthusiastically enough. And it's kind of disturbing because, I you know, I don't know how to put this in, in a nice way, but I don't want to be a part of a mob. I don't want to be part of an angry mob. I don't want to be part of your mob, even if it's a well-intentioned mob. I prefer to think independently I will... You know, act in what I believe is is the best, uh, most uh, most congruent direction that my personal compass and my moral compass points me. And I feel like I have a pretty good uh, take on the whole do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that is sound advice. So when it becomes a moral imperative, well, I notice you don't have a uh, black square on your Instagram for the blackout to show your solidarity with Black Lives Matters. And it's like. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to participate in the the latest social imperative just because everybody else is doing it. I'm not going to tell you that you can't do it. I'm not even going to tell you that it's dumb to be doing it because I don't necessarily think it is. I just wish to abstain from jumping on that particular bandwagon. And and I'll tell you the reason why. Virtue signaling is is the new fuel that drives discourse in this country today. And virtue signaling at its simplest can just be understood as people doing their best to assure everyone that I stand for the right things and, you know, therefore I am a good person. And in this case, most people's virtue signal is, well, I am against racial discrimination or I am against racism. Therefore, I am a good person. And at the risk of being very unpopular, I'm going to suggest that if all you're doing is standing against something, if all you're doing is just proclaiming yourself to be against this evil or that evil, that doesn't make you a good person. It's it's the lazy way to be, to have a, the appearance of righteousness. 
but it involves none of the hard work of actually being a decent person, living your life in such a way that you are, you know, uplifting and inspiring and, and persuading and helping build the people around you. Politicians are the worst at this. And if you feel like, well, what are you pointing a finger at me? I'm really not trying to single anybody out. I'm just pointing out that it's it's a lazy way to uh, to proclaim to everybody, look at me, I'm on the moral high ground. And I don't think that it really works that way. Now, you can feel free to disagree. There's no there's no need for anybody to agree with me. I had to kind of get that off my chest. It's just I, I don't know. I don't know a nice way to say no. Thank you. I don't want to jump on the bandwagon. It's not because I oppose you. It's not because I think you're wrong. I just have more productive ways to spend that limited amount of moral energy that I have. And, and so I choose to spend it in ways differently than those who are sitting on the bandwagon virtue signaling are doing. If it makes them feel better, that's great. But I believe that there may be more productive ways. And rather than tell you, you have to do it this way, I'm going to try to show you by power of example that there may be a better way. One of the things that concerns me is, uh, you know, the the idea that uh, accusations of racism or, you know, the, the preoccupation with racism has kind of become... Um, It's become almost a psychosis. And this is not to say that there aren't genuinely racist attitudes out there. There are some people who hold them. Sometimes it's not the people you would expect either. I think back a couple of years ago, do you remember when Roseanne Barr, who built a very successful career over 30 years plus by sticking her finger in the eye of those who consider themselves her societal betters, you know, with her blue class, blue class uh, or blue collar, um, you know, sort of uh, crass humor. It clearly resonated with enough people that she had a very prominent career in Hollywood. And then a couple of years ago, she sent a, uh, a politically motivated tweet comparing Valerie Jarrett to the Planet of the Apes or something like that. Or an unholy mo- uh, brotherhood between the mo- Muslim Brotherhood, an unholy union between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Planet of the Apes. And it was a politically motivated tweet. It was certainly not nice, but everybody who was on the virtue signaling bandwagon went nuts and insisted, well, it's, it's a racist thing that she was doing. And I don't know that necessarily that that was the immediate conclusion that everybody should come to. Some people will, but I think it's the people who are inclined to look for racism in everything. And, and I would remind you, genuine racism is rooted in a belief of one's inherent superiority over someone of a different race. It's a manifestation of that pack mentality that some collective nar- narcissists still cling to as an excuse to dominate or to disenfranchise anyone who isn't sufficiently similar to or supportive of their tribe. So it's not an accident that the, the most predictable accusations of racism or newly discovered racism always seem to originate from the people who are most preoccupied with race. And like I say, this isn't denying that there, are, there aren't instances of, of uh, true, you know, racial discrimination out there. But like the little boy that cried wolf, the people who cry racism at the drop of a hat do themselves a disservice by rendering the word meaningless through misuse. Instead of drawing attention to situations where objectively measurable harm is being done, accusations of racism have become kind of an ideological bludgeon that we use to beat people up or to gain power over others. And those spurious accusations 
stifle the open exchange of ideas in which irrational or even poorly informed ideas could be superseded with better ones. In other words, the answer to making popular truths which are sound and to expose those which are unsound is to encourage other people to speak freely. I happen to believe truth is a lot more resilient than we're being led to believe. Justice Lewis Brandis explained in the case Whitney v. California, the fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones. If there be a time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies to avert the evil by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. So you didn't have to agree with Roseanne Barr when she did her nasty tweet to recognize the scorched earth reaction to her insult was disproportionate, to put it mildly. But this is just an illustration of that politics and entertainment are some of the leading sources of toxicity in our culture today. So maybe we should reconsider how much time and attention we're willing to give them in our lives. And as far as accusations of racism, I mean, I see some incredible mental manipulation going on here. Well, if you ever say so much as all lives matter, you are a racist for saying so. And what that says to me is that, you know, this accusation of racism is is nothing more than a verbal taser that's being used by zealots to try to silence and shut down anyone with whom they disagree. It's a tool to prevent wider dialogue by keeping certain ideas off limits or keeping people off balance as to what they can say or think. Contrary to what we're being told, do you know tolerance doesn't equal uniformity of thought? That's the characteristic of oppression and tyranny. Even when someone holds a viewpoint that other people consider awful, as long as their behavior is peaceful, they have an absolute right to their beliefs. So that dogmatic need to silence people with whom we disagree, not a virtue. It's the clearest possible evidence that we're not at ease with what we are or who we or who we are or what we believe, rather. But that's something we can fix. See, seeking to destroy others for perceived differences in opinion should never be mistaken for the higher work of trying to persuade others on the merits of our own beliefs. And that's a lot easier to do when we've paid the price to actually know where we stand. Anytime we find ourselves wishing to silence another person for merely disagreeing with us, it's a safe bet we don't actually hold the moral high ground. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. And once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Please hold your calls until the next hour. We will open up the phone lines at that time, and you can hold forth on pretty much anything that you want to. All right, since I'm on a bit of a roll here and already, uh, you know, rubbing some people the wrong way, I guess I'm going to double down on this. Paul Craig Roberts, writing for, uh, actually on a piece that was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today, has an interesting challenge to the narrative that, uh, you know, it is primarily blacks who suffer from police violence. Now, again, just so we're clear, this is not to suggest that uh, there is no such thing as police violence against blacks. I think we've seen enough evidence that, no, it, it happens. And maybe they're even disproportionately targeted, pulled over, questioned, or suspected. 
But I want you to hear how Paul Roberts, Paul Craig Roberts puts this because there's more to it. We we have this bad case of tunnel vision right now because of the trauma of seeing what happened to George Floyd because of the uh, unrest, the riots and so forth. A lot of people are not thinking very clearly. They're, they're running on emotion. They're running on anxiety. So here's what Paul Craig Roberts has to say. He says, Americans are so brainwashed that even some of my readers cannot believe that police violence affects more white people than black people. He says the majority of victims are white, but, the di- but disproportionately, blacks are a smaller percent of the population. They are black. In turn, he says this disproportion can be explained by the fact that according to U.S. Department of Justice statistics, blacks commit a disproportion of homicides. Being only 13% of the population, blacks commit 52% of murders. Consequently, police regard confrontations confrontations with blacks as being more dangerous to police, and this affects police behavior. Now, he has links to back this up. And I understand some statisticians would say, well, now, are we talking 52% of murders that are solved? Because apparently only about 50% of homicides are solved. Okay, I'll let you noodle out the numbers. But consider this. These are recent statistics provided by Statista. He says, as I have explained, Americans are unaware of the facts for these reasons. The prostitutes, that's his reference to the media, do not report, except locally, police violence against white people. Because it does not fit the white racism explanation. Number two, he says, unlike blacks, white people tend not to protest. Whites have not been educated to regard violence against themselves as racism or something specifically to do with being white. Moreover, there is no national reporting or days of national news coverage of police violence used against whites. So no one white or black is aware of the extent of police violence against white people. Therefore, white people tend to give police the benefit of the doubt. White complaints are also restrained by the fear that coming down too hard on the police will make police more hesitant and less effective in law enforcement. And number three, he says identity politics that dominates our time has no interest in destroying its white racist explanation of U.S. society. Indeed, the strengthening of the racist explanation of America is the purpose of the New York Times 1619 Project. Interesting. I'll post a link to this article so you can follow the links for yourself. It's not something that I expect everybody to agree with. Just a little bit different point of view. And I know there's a lot of jockeying going on right now on social media for who is who is more pious than thou when it comes to social justice. I think Paul Craig Roberts has a pretty solid take on most of this. Definitely worth considering what you do with the information after that. Well, that's up to you. All right, let's take a moment here to talk about why it is that so many of the challenges we face tend to become even more complicated and widespread every time we turn to government to solve them. Ken McManigal has a, just a gift for being able to distill this down into the, the essence of, of what you need to understand about government. And, and the first thing he points out, is that, points out is that most people really have no idea what government is good for. He says many problems in modern societies happen because people confuse political government for something it isn't. So they expect it to do things it can't do and isn't suited for. To do things right, you need to use the correct tools. A hammer is the proper tool for driving nails. A feather isn't a hammer. 
Neither is a shotgun. Even though you might be able to use a coffee cup to drive a small nail, don't try this with your favorite cup. It's not a hammer either. Using things for the purposes they aren't well suited will cause problems. Even if something looks like a hammer, feels like a hammer, it could be wielded like a hammer, if it's made out of the wrong material, he says it's not going to work as well as a hammer. Now, he says, after decades of observation, I have yet to find any situation that requires government or where government would be the best tool for the job. In fact, he says it doesn't seem to be the correct tool for doing anything helpful. Now, he allows here, you probably disagree, so I'll stay out of your search for the proper use of political government, and instead I'll focus on what I know government isn't the right tool for. And this is where I think he makes some pretty worthwhile points. He says, government is not your doctor. It is not a scientist. It's not an expert on anything other than how to push people around and steal their life, liberty, and property. Government is not your parent. It is not your educator. It is not your moral guide. It is not your savior. It is not your friend. Government is not your spouse, nor is it your provider. It is not your leader or your protector. He says, government is not a genie from a magic lamp granting your wishes. It is not your ATM. Anything it gives you has been stolen from someone, often from your future self. Can future you afford to support present you? <laughs> Thinking of government as something it isn't won't turn out well for society. Kent McMadigal says it's not healthy to treat it as though it's any of those things. Even if you get away with using government as a tool, when you mix anything with politics, you end up with only politics. Oh, that's a true state. That needs to be a bumper sticker. When you mix anything with politics, you end up with only politics. It's like mixing poison with food. So Kent McManigal says, as I say, I can't tell you what government is good for. I'll let you ponder the answer to that puzzle for yourself. But he says, for me, political government, which is everything people usually call the government, is an unnecessary evil. It's not a tool I would use, even if I had no other. Now, I recognize that's a pretty harsh stance. I myself would likely disagree, at least in the sense that I'm one of those weirdos who believes that proper government, as in properly limited government, can actually be a stabilizing influence and a blessing in the lives of the people that it serves. But that's the key word. Not the people it rules, not the people it controls, not the people it manages, but the people that it serves. And it can only do so if it is limited and kept within its proper forms. About the time you start to make government the arbiter of, uh, well, this is right, this is wrong, this is acceptable, this isn't. And I'm not talking about punishing actual harm to someone or enforcing contracts. I'm talking about when you try to enforce attitudes or beliefs. That's a very, very poor use of government. I've actually had a couple of productive discussions with friends in the last few days about how politics has a tendency to poison everything. I actually had one friend adopt the phrase for himself, political agnostic. That makes me happy because it shows me he's thinking about this in more than just that, that silly left-right paradigm that we all have spent way too much time in. But there's a deeper discussion, too, and this kind of comes back to the idea of, well, what if there is racial prejudice? How can we fix this once and for all? And the problem 
with that question is the answer that immediately springs to most people's minds is there's got to be a way we can incorporate government to make that happen. I don't think that's a proper use of government. Here's why. I want to live in a virtuous society. I want to live in a society where people do unto others as they would have done unto them, where they consistently make choices to be good people. Not because they've been coerced, not because they've been manipulated, but because they freely chose for themselves. And I mean, really, had the choice, I could go this way or I could go that way, and they choose a good way. Because that is where authentic virtue is found. Unfortunately, too many people think government is going to be a tool for creating authentic virtue. It ain't going to happen. And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. So I'm going to shift gears now. We're going to talk a little bit about the Second Amendment, probably one of the more timely subjects that we can cover. And there was a friend of mine who sent me uh, a little article yesterday. This was uh, this is from the NRA. So take it for what it's worth. I know some people kind of have a knee jerk reaction. Oh, the NRA. I can't believe a word they say. But I think this is backed up by other facts as well. And I think this this would hold up whether it was the NRA telling you this or, you know, uh, Sarah Brady telling you this. The first half of 2020 has seen a record amount of firearm sales. Well, you kind of knew that, right? Roughly 40% of those sales being first-time firearms owners. What that means is more than 2 million Americans are now first-time gun owners. And I'm thinking after what we saw in the last few days, we're going to see another record set this month, just like the record set in May was a record over last May. In fact, my friend who sent this says, I think sometimes liberals must own stock in gun manufacturing companies. Interesting. I don't know if that's the case or not. I do know this. A lot of people have come to the realization that when it counts, when the chips are down, government will not be there to protect you. A tweet that I have seen making the rounds, and I I believe this is a legitimate one, was uh, someone called the police to report, hey, we've got looters trying to break in. And the police said, we've got our hands full, do what you have to do, and hung up. Now, this is the same kind of thing that happened back in 92 in Los Angeles with the uh, riots that followed the Rodney King verdict. Same kind of thing. People, it set gun control back, as Rush Limbaugh said at that time, 20 years Although, actually, about two years later, here came, you know, the Clinton administration and the so-called assault weapons ban. The Brady law was passed the year prior to that. So it didn't set it back that far. But right now, people have seen there is uncertainty, there is violence, and they don't want to take a chance. And, you know, you you can tell it's it's a very telling thing when a very hardcore anti-gun state like New York has a picture in the news. I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was Long Island I think it was in Long Island. Maybe it was in in Brooklyn. But it was a line of people standing in line to buy a gun. A two-hour wait just to get into the store. Fifty people standing in line. Somebody's feeling pretty motivated right now. And I'm not going to suggest that, oh, it's just, you know, heave the moment or they're angry about something. Nope. Their eyes have been opened. And they've recognized 
The police are not going to be there for them in their moment of need. The primary responsibility for your well-being falls to you. And that's a good thing, as we're going to talk about. Sam Jacobs, writing for Ammo.com, has a marvelous essay. I'm going to share some excerpts of this essay with you. It's titled, Democide, Understanding the State's Monopoly on Violence and the Second Amendment. Now, if you haven't heard the term democide before, uh, this was, a, this was a, a phrase that was coined by a historian by the name of R.J. Rummel. And it's the murder of any person or people by their government. And according to R.J. Rummel, if you look at uh, just the 20th century, for instance, at all the various governments, including, you know, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, you have roughly 262 million people who died at the hands of their government. That's crazy. But what it means is states, meaning government, are statistically far more violent than individuals. And yet, most of us have been taught for most of our lives, well, now, only the state should really have a monopoly on violence. Every hardcore gun control advocate believes that if we could just get guns out of the wrong hands, but they never stop to think that maybe the wrong hands are those state actors. They only want to take them away from private citizens because obviously the state is responsible enough to handle them. What was that number again? 262 million people died at the hands of their governments in the 20th century alone. Democide. Now let's talk a little bit about the history of democide. Because it's, it's a pretty inclusive term here. Government killings tend to have mixed motivations. It could be religion. It could be ethnicity, politics, sometimes overlapping. As Sam Jacobs says, after all, do the motivations even matter? Democide treats all mass killings at the hands of one's government as a single crime, which allow us to better compare apples to apples. He writes, democide may be a practice as old as time, but it reached new depths in the 20th century. This is when warfare became mechanized, and as pointed out by anarchist philosopher Hans Hermann Hoppe, war shifted from being about property disputes over pieces of lands into ideological crusades. Democracy versus monarchy, or liberalism and communism versus fascism, are great examples of this. He says, while the act of governments killing their own citizens is not unique to this century, the concept of democide was first formulated by Rudolf Rummel, a late professor emeritus of political science at the University of Hawaii and frequent Nobel Peace Prize nominee. He studied the political violence of the 20th century with an eye toward doing all he could to end it. And in doing so, he quickly noticed that not all mass killings committed by governments fell under the heading of genocide. And as stated above, the differences between mass killing for religious, political, and ethnic reasons are often difficult to separate from one another. So Rummel found a far more elegant term in democide, which could easily refer to all of this and more. Now, here are some surprising conclusions based on empirical study over a period of 15 years that Rummel discovered. He penned six books on the subject, publishing his abstracts and statistics on his website. By the way, there's a link in this article. It's a free resource. You can check it out for yourself. You can vet this information. The major conclusions that Rummel came to were that despite their other shortcomings, Western liberal democracies excelled over all other form of governments in two major respects. Number one, democratically elected governments were the least likely to kill their own citizens. 
And number two, democratically elected governments do not wage war against one another. Now, he employed a broad definition of democide, which included not just lining people up and shooting them, but also deliberate neglect, intentionally poor policy or even forced labor. Hence, the Holodomor, a planned famine, which is widely agreed upon to have been the result of deliberate Soviet policies directed against Ukrainians, fits squarely in the camp of democide. And although he was an outspoken proponent of international liberal democracy and a critic of communism, Rummel did not support going to war for the sole purpose of replacing a dictatorship with a democracy. Far and away, though, the worst offenders in the world of democide are communist regimes. The Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, all enter the Million Plus Club and rank among the most democidal regimes in human history. Other forms of dictatorships ranging from fascist to quasi-Marxist third world nationalism also rank high, with the autocracy of the Ottoman Empire being a relative outlier. Other major example, another, the other major example of democide is, uh, from, a, from a monarchy is the Belgian colonial authority in the Congo, which took place at the hands of a constitutional monarch, not an absolute one. Now, the point here is, while Western liberal democracies are by no means beyond rebuke, they're comparatively innocent when it comes to democide. And what's more, Sam Jacobs reports most democidal deaths at the hands of democratic powers tend to happen during times of war. This would be things like the firebombing of Dresden. Western democracies have been known to act with undue care or even bloodlust with regard to rival nations. But they're not known for wholesale mass slaughter of their own citizens or that of other nations. And while this certainly doesn't make the victims of modern liberal democracies any less tragic, it does result in an overall body count that's much less than totalitarian regimes and military dictatorships. Incidents like the storming of the Branch Davidians or Ruby Ridge are noteworthy as aberrations, shocking scandals precisely because of how far they fell outside of democratic norms. So, you want to see the tail of the tape? Here are some st- statistics. Here's a look by the numbers of who the worst offenders were. Communist China, under the stewardship of Mao Zedong, has the ignoble honor of being the most democidal regime in human history to the tune of 65 million people killed. That includes 30 million during the Great Leap Forward alone. Second is the Soviet Union with 29 million deaths. This breaks down into 20 million under Stalin, 9 million under Lenin, and 7 million in the Holodomor. As stated above, Hitler comes in third with official estimates of the total dead ranging from 10 million to 12.5 million. Ten other countries killed somewhere between a million and 10 million of their own people between 1900 and 1987. Japan under Emperor Tojo, Russia under Lenin's Bolshevik Revolution, Pasha's Turkey, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Kim Il-sung's North Korea, Miriam's communist regime in Ethiopia, Gowon in Nigeria, Bangladesh under Yahya Khan, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, Idi Amin in Uganda. Isn't that crazy to think how many of these governments were perpetrators of democide? We'll come back in a few moments. We'll continue this article. This is Loving Liberty.
Hey, once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you're finding this article interesting. This is from Ammo.com, written by Sam Jacobs. Democide, talking about uh, how uh, the state's monopoly on force is countered by the Second Amendment. I think it's very timely advice. And and if I could be so bold as to say this, look, I, I don't want to get conspiratorial here, but I think one of the driving forces of a lot of this unrest are these uh, revolutionaries. Now, you may call them Antifa. I think that that's probably the most likely explanation. They are Marxist to their core. They want to do away with police departments. They want to do away with capitalism. They want a monopoly on force. Based on what I have seen, just of their conduct in the various demonstrations, their tactics to, to uh, you know, go victimize people who have, have not personally harmed them, just indiscriminate, you know, rage and violence against innocent people. I think these are the kind of people against whom you would not ever want to give up your guns. You would never want to surrender that right to keep and bear arms. And my prediction is if Donald Trump loses in the election this coming November, you are going to see not just Antifa, but the whole political left coalesce around an absolute imperative to disarm the American public as quickly and as violently as possible to consolidate that control of power. They know that a people who are armed cannot be subjugated. So I hate to sound so so stark, but I believe strongly that's that's the reason why you don't give up that natural right to keep and bear arms. Let's talk about Hitler, the Holocaust and gun control. Sam Jacobs points out the link between gun control and the Holocaust is not clear cut, despite being a go to example of gun control proceeding democide. In fact, the Nazi government loosened, loosened gun control for most German citizens. But at the same time, it restricted access to Jews. In other words, the gun control was imposed on the targeted population. And this is important. We need to keep the guns out of the wrong hands. Why? Because we need to render them helpless. So the German law in 1938 explicitly stated no gun permits may be given to Jews. So while Hitler was liberalizing gun ownership restrictions in Germany for, quote, trustworthy citizens, he was also actively disarming people termed unreliable, in particular Jews in Germany. They weren't only prohibited from owning firearms, they weren't even allowed to work in their manufacturer. Now, keep in mind that Jews represented less than 1% of the overall German population. So it's unfair to say that had they been armed, well, they could have prevented the Holocaust. However, if you, if you look at the 1943 Warsaw, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, a relatively small group of Jews outmanned and outgunned rather and hopelessly outmanned still held off some of the toughest fighters that the Nazis could put forth for weeks. And of course, uh, that was also at a time when German military resources were being drained elsewhere on two fronts. So let's talk gun confiscation, gun confiscation rather, and democide. And the important thing to remember here is just because gun control is implemented doesn't mean that democide is going to take place. At the same time, it can't take place unless the targeted population is disarmed. So examples of this would include in Turkey, gun control was tightened prior to the Armenian genocide. 
The Soviet Union instituted gun control in 1929, disarming the formerly heavily armed Soviet populace. China's gun control program was rolled out by the Republic of China in 1938. Guatemala started gun control in 1964 prior to killing 100,000 Mayan Indians. Uganda's gun control problem started gun control program rather started in 1970 almost immediately before an 8-year program of exterminating Christians began. So the article says the question of democide's relation to gun ownership becomes more complex when we look at which countries own the most guns. Arguably the nation with the longest standing tradition of personal freedom, the United States, also has the highest rates of gun ownership. Beyond that, things start getting less clear. See, Switzerland, like the U.S., also has a long-standing tradition of both freedom and gun ownership, though far fewer citizens have ammunition than have firearms. Finland, Norway, and Sweden are other countries in the top ten classified as free by Freedom House with high levels of gun ownership, along with Uruguay. However, also in the top ten of gun ownership, we find Iraq, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia, all of which are rated as not free, the last of which has become a bit of a symbol for countries lacking in basic freedom and human rights. The other end of the spectrum, correlating gun control with a lack of freedom, now that's a lot more clear. Most countries without much of the way of freedom also have gun control. However, no one would accuse South Korea, Japan, or Ireland of being totalitarian states ripe for democide, despite the extreme difficulty of owning weapons and the near impossibility of owning handguns. While the imperial Japanese government committed a slew of atrocities during the Second World War, it's almost certain that no one would place a bet on them to take that up anew anytime soon. So Sam Jacobs writes, gun confiscation is either necessary is neither necessary nor sufficient for democidal atrocities. Remember the case of Nazi Germany where some people had their gun rights restricted, but others had them expanded? However, as we can see from the above cases, Removing guns from the populace also removes at least one major obstacle. So consider as a thought experiment the chances of the United States government exterminating the people of coastal California, where citizens owning firearms is frowned upon, versus their chances of doing the same in greater Appalachia. Also consider that democide against an armed population isn't necessarily more difficult in this day and age, especially with newer military technologies like directed energy weapons. He says, perhaps one thing is uncontroversial, though. If you don't resist a democide, your chances of death are almost certain. And if you do choose to resist, you'll need something sterner than rocks and empty bottles. Firearms, at the very least, provide a fighting chance against the very real possibility that your government decides your group is the next Ukrainian kulaks, or against the far more tangible threats to your daily existence, like street crime or home invasions. Fascinating article. And I also find it fascinating that nearly 2 million Americans just since the first of this year are now first-time gun owners. Now, I think this puts some responsibility on those of us who have been longtime gun owners and those of us who are serious about that uh, right to keep and bear arms. So I don't want to make you feel guilty. This is not my, my goal to guilt you or otherwise twist your arm. But I would suggest that if you know someone who either is, you know, currently searching for a firearm, maybe they're asking you for advice because they know, uh, you know, you, you know a few things about this. Find the time. Make the time to be available for them to help them get the basics. Safety training. To, to get some basic gun handling skills. Basic marksmanship skills. And then, if possible, 
be their buddy and accompany them to get some quality defensive firearms training. I'm going to take a moment here, and I'm, I'm not going to name any one particular uh, training outfit. There's a lot of very good ones. But to attend a firearms training school is a truly life-changing experience. And for me, this happened for the first time over 20 years ago. I went and attended a four-day rifle class at Front Sight just outside of Pahrump, Nevada. It's in the middle of nowhere. Even even driving from St. George, it was a you know pretty far piece to get there and a sacrifice to be out there in the desert and the dust and the cold and the wind, you know, for four straight days. But I came away from that class not only with absolutely solid firearms handling skills. I knew that I could command my immediate surroundings as far as I could clearly identify a target. More importantly, though, the lectures that accompanied that training gave me a very strong minor in when it is appropriate to use deadly force. This is where people need the the, the best training they can possibly afford. Because if you have a better understanding of when it is appropriate, when it isn't appropriate, you know, when to shoot, when not to shoot, when to even introduce a firearm into the situation, you have options. A person who is untrained is more likely to make a mistake only because they're scared and they don't know what other options exist. A person who is competent and has been trained is able to think through the stress of someone trying to take their life They're able to navigate that deadly situation. And oftentimes, if you see a threat coming from far enough off, if you recognize, ooh, I don't like the way that this carload of guys is looking at me, you can take steps to remove yourself from the situation without it ever turning into a gunfight, which to me is the best possible situation when you don't have to look down your gun sights at another human being. But most importantly, with quality training, and it is expensive, And it takes time, which is also expensive to us. But with that quality training, you know that you have skill at arms. There's a comfort in that. There's a peace of mind that comes with that. And it's something you definitely want to share with those who are new to the firearms scene. So consider making yourself a mentor and help those who are new gun owners become competent gun owners. 